0: Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. We'll be reading through uh, the first part of verse 19. If you have the ESV, uh, that section is separated out for you. Acts 9. Hear the word of the Lord. But Saul And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he has seen a vision. in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. Go. and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened this is the word of the Lord God. let us pray Lord we ask that you would open our eyes this morning open our eyes to see who you are. Open our ears to hear your word and God may we be encouraged. May we be reminded that the gracious sovereign work you did in the life of this wicked sinner is the same work that you do in our lives. May we see it. May we know it. May we by faith embrace Christ more fully. In Jesus name we pray, Amen. You may be seated. If you're visiting for the first time or you've been, you're relatively new here uh, since we kicked off our Acts series in September if you've been here since September and maybe just need a refresher, we began by talking about the significance of this book and the title of this book, which if you look in most of your Bibles in the ESV, it says the Acts of the Apostles, and maybe not the most accurate title, Uh, clearly the Apostles do things, right, and they're acting in the name of Jesus, but others have suggested maybe better names. The Acts of the Holy Spirit. There's an entire book written, it's called The Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. And I shared in that first message on Acts from Patrick Schreiner's book in a a New Testament theology series called The Mission of the Triune God. That's his suggestion, Uh, not saying we should, you know, go in with a marker and cross out Acts of the Apostles in our Bibles and call it the mission of the Triune God, but, that's, but that, that's a little bit more of an accurate description of what is going on in this book. And here's what he said in the introduction to that book. He said, one cannot speak about the Spirit according to Acts without putting him in the frame of the risen Christ. One cannot speak of Christ without speaking of the Father's plan. One can't speak about the witness of the Apostles without relating to the empowering, relating it to the empowering of the Spirit. This book is most fundamentally about the mission of the triune god. And we come today what to what I would argue is the most consequential set of events in this book. I believe in the whole old in the whole new testament outside of the life death and burial and resurrection of Jesus I think this is these are the most consequential set of events. So basically after the four gospels my opinion this is the most consequential chapter and then the recounting of events we see the the recounting of of these events uh, later on in chapters 22 and 26 Paul recounts his own conversion so I think that even adds to the weight of chapter 9 that so much time in the book of Acts is spent on Saul's conversion this initial recounting of it and then the, the later Um, And just just as a note here, uh, you probably know Saul becomes Paul. So I will be referring hopefully as accurately as I can just uh, if I'm saying Saul, that's in this passage. If I'm later saying Paul, it's if I'm referencing. So it's the same person, Saul and Paul are the same person. So if there's any confusion, that's what's going on there. Not a huge deal, um, but I'll just, I'll be using both of the terms, both of the names. So if acts is then fundamentally about the mission of the triune god and if this chapter is as important as i'm arguing it is i think the theme of mission then must be present as we think about this we're going to see the triune god accomplish his mission particularly as we see him sovereignly and graciously save even the most unlikely converts receive conversions in back-to-back chapters. We see Saul here in chapter 9, then we're gonna see Cornelius in chapter 10. So there's very much an emphasis on God's gracious and sovereign work in salvation in converting these two men. Sticking with our theme of mission, we're going to look at this passage as it unfolds in four scenes and in each scene we will be introduced to a different missionary. Now, I use that word missionary a little bit loosely, um, but I think you'll see where I'm going with this. First, in verses 1 and 2, we see a murderous missionary. There's an interesting beginning here to chapter 9. The first words of the chapter are, but Saul. If you had just been reading the passage before this, you're going like, what is this? What does that have to do with anything? Well, as we've seen, there's this big parentheses uh, beginning in chapter 8, verse 4, through the end of chapter 8, where Philip uh, goes and proclaims Christ in Samaria, his interaction with Simon, the magician, his interaction with the Ethiopian eunuch. That parentheses is um, kind of bookended by, before that, we saw in chapter 7 we were introduced to Saul in chapter 7 at the stoning of Stephen in verse 58 that says that Stephen was cast out of the city and they stoned him the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul that is our first introduction to Saul and then in chapter 8 verse 1 says that Saul approved of his execution that is Stephen's and this great persecution arises against the church verse 3 chapter 8 verse 3 is where This section ends, and then we got the big parenthesis. Verse 3, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So that's where we're left in chapter 8, verse 3. And then Luke kind of goes on this... Interesting tangent to talk about the ministry of Philip. And then he comes back now in chapter 9 and begins, But Saul, so with, with the things we saw in chapter, end of chapter 7 and beginning of verse 8 in mind, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he picks up on, this, on the ravaging that we saw in chapter 8 as Saul is still breathing threats and murder. Now this language here of breathing threats used, is used in secular literature at the time to refer to wild beasts. This is not a pretty picture here. And Paul in his own testimony before King Agrippa in chapter 26, he said that he was persecuting the saints in raging fury. Okay? This is not just some guy hide, hiding behind his keyboard writing some nasty blog posts about Christians. This is someone who is on full assault, raging fury, seeking to, to bring Christians bound to prison. He's, he's there at their execution. He's approving of it. This guy is out of control, right? He is. He is a maniac and this like animal instinct is what we're supposed to to visualize here. It's just it's hard to even fathom this type of, of rage and fury. So he was on a murderous mission. and We see how he was using the system to his advantage in verse 2. He gets a letter from the high priest He's going to, to synagogues. He's he's using the, the religious authority and the system to his advantage. And this is a huge commitment for Paul to do that for Saul to do this to go to Damascus. Damascus was a 150 mile journey from Jerusalem. This would have taken about a week uh, to get there basically like going from here to the north suburbs of Chicago. Uh, Some of like the Moleskis, you guys make that trip pretty often, right? But imagine making that trip without modern transportation. Imagine, let's get on the donkey kids, like here we go, We'll, we'll be there in a week, right? This is a huge commitment for Saul to say, I'm gonna go all the way to Damascus, I'm gonna spend this time and I'm gonna go and then I'm gonna bring these people back to Jerusalem, right? After, I'm gonna go and capture them and then go on this long journey. Now, what's going on here with Damascus? Well, Damascus was an influential city. It was kind of a a central place where a lot of different trade routes came through. So there is fear, I think, on on Paul's part and probably others' part, that if if this Christian influence, if, if the way, as it's called here, right, if the way takes root in Damascus in this influential city where all these people are coming in and going out, we're going to have a huge problem on our hands, right? So Paul goes to Damascus, Saul goes to Damascus uh, in order to to take these believers in the way and take them back to Jerusalem and put them in prison in order to try to stamp out uh, this movement. You have to think that after Stephen's martyrdom that Paul was was pretty concerned how are after witnessing that after seeing people be killed for their faith how are they still following Jesus right like wouldn't this persecution just put the flames out right wouldn't this be the end of the movement but it's not right so he's doing everything in his power to continue to persecute the church I love that description there. Any belonging to the way. It's such an important descriptor. Now if, we hear, if we heard that today, that might sound kind of mystical and new agey, right? Someone might talk about the way. I might, you might think about like Star Wars or you know, some kind of like force, right? There's, there's, there's a way, a path. But it's not a system. It's not an uprising or a revolution. But it's a person, Jesus said I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The word that Jesus used for way is the same word that's used here for the way. And we see it capitalized, right? So it is referring ultimately to a person. These early Christians were a threat to the political and religious establishment of the day not because they were obnoxious and unnecessarily provocative, but because they followed and they were willing to lay down their lives for the one who is the way. Though we might not face this level of overt persecution in our day, and we may at some point, but even if we don't, will the world around us see a people committed to the way of Jesus? Will our countercultural effectiveness be witnessed by those around us who question why we don't think and act and respond in the way that the world does? That's one encouragement and challenge for us at the end of this first scene with Saul on his murderous mission to destroy those who belong to the way. And now we come to our next scene in verses three through nine, and we're introduced to our next missionary merciful missionary. Asal is almost to his destination Damascus after a long week on the road. The city is in his sights. Maybe he's wringing his hands with excitement and as his fury rages, as he wants to get more Christians and haul them off to, to prison. And then all of his plans fall apart. Look at the middle of verse 3. Suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice the mercy extended to Saul in this question. Now, at minimum, Saul deserved a stern rebuke here. And yet, a simple and heart-piercing question. Why? Why? Are you persecuting me? For persecution of the followers of Jesus is persecution of him. You mess with his bride, you mess with him. So Jesus asks, why are you persecuting me? Saul asks then a simple question in reply, who are you Lord? And he gets the answer that he was dreading. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Wait a minute. Jesus was supposed to be dead. And all of the kooks belonging to the way surely are just delusional, right? They just got big imaginations. This is just another group of people who were hoping for some political salvation. And they're just going to flame out like all the other rebel groups, right? That was what Saul's teacher Gamaliel told the religious council in chapter 5. Remember his advice to those who wanted to kill the apostles for preaching about Jesus? He said, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. The council took Gamaliel's advice in chapter five. Saul, the student, clearly did not. And despite his arrogance and his hatred and his wild animal type fury against the followers of Jesus, he has shown mercy. Jesus instructed him in verse 6 to rise and enter the city, and that he would be told what he is to do. We then see the reaction of those who were with him in verse 7. They stood speechless. They heard a voice, but they saw no one. In verses 8 and 9, Saul rises from the ground. His eyes are open, but he is not able to see they bring him into Damascus and then it says in verse 9 for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank Well, what can we learn from the mercy shown to Saul by Jesus the merciful missionary first it is a mercy from God to disrupt our sinning and our wicked plans it is a mercy from God to disrupt our sinning and our wicked plans. We plan our own ways, right? We do things, people plan evil things, and it is a mercy of God to disrupt that sinning. Second, it is a mercy from God to reveal himself to us. Saul didn't deserve this. Saul didn't earn this. When I was just out of college and I was kind of beginning to understand a little bit more about God's sovereignty and our salvation and I was talking to a friend who, who didn't agree with me on that and I, I said, what about Saul, right? He said, well, he was a good Jew, He was this religious guy who was doing all these things and, and God, Jesus knew that Saul was going to be useful for him because of how devout he was and I'm like, what? <laughs> like, where do you get that in the text, right? Saul's this murderous guy who's killing Christians. To say that he somehow, Jesus saw like, oh yeah, he'll, he'll be useful because he's, you know, all of these, these things that, that he brings to the table. No, Saul did not deserve mercy at all. He did not deserve for Jesus to come and reveal himself to him, and neither do we. Third, it is a mercy from God to tell us what to do, to give us a new mission. Jesus comes and he he disrupts Saul's life. He tells him what the plan for his life is going to be. That's a mercy of God to tell us what to do, to, to redirect us, to give us a new mission. Fourth, it is a mercy from God to deprive us of things we take for granted, that we might see our need for him. We see it here with, with Saul. His, his very sight is taken away. Jesus blinds him. Actually physically blinds him. And that is a mercy. We see then that he, he fasts and, and prays during this time. Food is deprived of him. What are some things that... We might be deprived of. That God might mercifully deprive us of health, wealth, relationships, security. That's hard at times to, to think that, that God would, would do those things purposely. Sometimes he needs to do that to get our attention, right? Sometimes he needs to take away the things that we're trusting in. And that's a mercy, that's not judgment, that's not him being harsh it's him being merciful to get our attention we, might, we may not be outwardly as, as wicked as, Paul, as Saul was here but we see, we saw in our confession of sin right him saying I'm the foremost of sinners if I asked you the question who is the worst sinner that you know what would you say? would, yeah, John, thank you, pointing to yourself, right? Because you know your own heart, right? You know the things that you're ashamed to tell other people about that you think, or that that you think about other people, or the way you view other people or judge other people. You're the only one who knows your heart. And if when you hear that question, you don't think, oh yeah, that's me. If you suddenly have a list in your mind of a bunch of other people, I would encourage you to... To wrestle with Paul's words, right? In 1st Timothy about being the foremost of sinners. We should all be able to say that. I am the chief of sinners, right? I am the worst sinner that I know. And it's a mercy that God would reveal that to us. And help us to see that that's true. But that, again, we're not on our own, right? We're not just left in our sin. But it's a mercy to recognize the depth of our sin, Moving on to our next scene, uh, verses 10 through 16, we're introduced to a reluctant missionary. A reluctant missionary. Ananias, clearly not the infamous Ananias from chapter 5. This Ananias was a disciple in Damascus, who one Bible scholar has called one of the forgotten heroes of the Christian church. Jesus appears to him in a vision Notice the parallel with Saul. The Lord calls him by name and he replies not who are you Lord like Saul because Ananias knows the Lord. He's a follower of Jesus. He says here I am Lord. The Lord then tells him in verses 11 and 12 to go and meet Saul at the house of Judas again an unfortunate name association or maybe the use here of Ananias and Judas are purposefully redemptive. Because he goes to him to go lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. I love verses 13 and 14 then because it hits so close to home. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done. To your saints at Jerusalem and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name how many of us are willing to unflinchingly run into the face of danger and we don't have the Lord appearing to us in visions telling us what to do how many of us would be willing to go and do this to go to this guy, right, who's been killing Christians and do what Jesus told him to do. We're like Ananias, aren't we? Let's be honest. It might not be a vision, but maybe it's that still, small voice nudging from the Holy Spirit to have a conversation with someone that maybe we feel threatened by. Someone who's intimidating, has a strong personality. Or to take a stand for Jesus in a situation where it's not going to benefit our career or our reputation. Say, nah, maybe, maybe next time. Or maybe, some, maybe somebody else will do it, right? I've used that one a few times. We all know what it's like to be Reluctant. So I think Ananias is also a reminder of the mercy of Jesus. He doesn't get chastised for his timidity. Jesus doesn't say, come on, buddy, suck it up. Get with the program, right? Don't you trust me? Isn't your faith strong enough? No, the merciful missionary tells the reluctant missionary, go to the murderous missionary with these beautiful words beginning verse 15 go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name I love how this whole thing unfolds something that we often might not realize when we think about Saul's conversion is that it wasn't a sudden conversion he didn't get knocked to the ground and blinded and immediately confess his sins and call out to the Lord. Remember he's been blind, he's been in the dark for three days. Probably some deliberate symbolism here. Then the Lord tells Ananias what his plan is. The Lord decided, not Saul, The triune God is going to fulfill his promise that his disciples would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Remember Acts 1-8, kind of that theme for the book. We're going to see that geographical progression. And this is a major turning point as Saul, who will be called Paul, becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. As we see that Geographical significance again of Acts one eight come fully into view as the gospel begins to go now to the end of the earth. Another reason that I think this chapter is so important, and don't miss the significance of verse sixteen. I think we could do a whole sermon just on the call to suffer for the sake of Jesus' name, and how that suffering is not accidental; it's ordained. Jesus says, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I think one of the big questions, one of the big challenges is is how do we we hold together? How do we reconcile? How do we understand suffering and the sovereignty of God? Um, Way beyond uh, the pale of this sermon, but topic I'm very passionate about. If that's something that you've, you've struggled with, if that's something you're, you're having a hard time in your mind reconciling, I would love to talk to you about that. There's a lot of great material out there. There's great talks I could point you to, uh, but it's not just a matter of, well, just read this book, right, or listen to this, this sermon. It's, it's a real struggle that a lot of people have. How do we understand the suffering that we go to, go through and, and God's sovereignty in that? Um, and I don't want to just you know, cherry-pick and, and say, well, here's the, here's the verse, here's the slam-dunk verse. But I think you have to read this verse and, and you really have to wrestle with the mercy of Jesus is telling Paul that he's going to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Um, and again, we're not apostles, right? We're not, we don't have the same mission individually as Paul had, but God's sovereignty in our suffering, um, I think we can be we can be encouraged by this, and this really will be will become one of the major drumbeats of Paul's life and ministry. So again, let's not gloss over this. Jesus also calls Saul a chosen instrument word instrument appears 23 times in the New Testament. About half of those uses are these synonyms vessel, jar, and pots. You might know where I'm going with this. Probably the most recognizable passage is 2nd Corinthians chapter 4 where Paul writes very intimately about his suffering for the sake of the gospel and his care for the Christians in Corinth. He has just finished in 2 Corinthians 4 6 describing how the God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ now this might all sound like the experience of some exclusive company of Apostles those who have seen visions of Jesus like Paul himself but listen to what follows and how it ties with the idea of being a chosen instrument how it, that ties with this idea of suffering second Corinthians four beginning of verse seven but we have this treasure which is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ the gospel we have this treasure of the gospel in what jars of clay so we're jars here' it's the same as instrument in Acts 9. Saul is a chosen jar, right? And he's going to suffer for Jesus' name. He goes on. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, but not driven Despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Notice the, the beautiful reversal here for Paul. He was once the instigator of these things affliction, persecution, being struck down. He was the one instigating those things. And now, by the mercy of Christ, he is graciously on the receiving end of them. He goes on, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus, also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you.) This section, Second Corinthians 4 and 5, Paul talking about the, the ministry of the gospel, the call to suffer for the sake of the gospel, is very closely connected with his call here in Acts chapter 9. This describes the beautiful transformation that took place in Saul, Paul's life, which we see in our final scene in verses 17 through 19 as we meet a transformed missionary. Saul had been on a murderous mission at the beginning of the chapter. And after three days of darkness and hunger and thirst, he's about to be made new by the grace and the mercy of God and given a new mission. The reluctant missionary obeys his Lord's command and enters the house where Saul is waiting for him. Remember back in verse 12, he was told that Ananias, Saul was told that Ananias would come. Ananias lays his hands on him. And don't miss the very first words out of his mouth. This is in verse 17. Brother Saul. This should stop us in our tracks. Just think about this for a moment. Brother. Just a short time ago, maybe minutes Maybe an hour. I don't know how close Ananias was to Judas' house when he had the vision, but guessing it wasn't that far. So not long before this, Ananias was reminding the Lord that Saul is out for the necks of those like Ananias. And now in obedience to Jesus and recognition of his power to save even the foremost of sinners, he calls Saul Brother. In other words, welcome the family. You are one of us now. You are adopted, you are made new. You belong. You have a new identity. He then reiterates why he came, Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then Saul's transformation is complete in verses 18 and 19. Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. What we see here is what the Westminster Confession of Faith calls effectual calling. We saw it in our affirmation of faith in the shorter catechism question again there's a more full description of this on the cover of the worship guide I'm not going to read the whole thing but if you if you have that kind of starting right in the middle there what God does for us in Christ he enlightens our minds Spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. He takes away our hearts of stone. He gives unto us a new heart of flesh. We read that in Ezekiel 36. He renews our wills. Saul's conversion is very unique on the one hand, it's not normative, it's not the ordinary conversion experience. But on the other hand it's not completely unique. When God opens our eyes to see how we've been living for our own mission and not his, when he gives us a new heart and fills us with his Holy Spirit, we have a Damascus Road type experience. Now for many of us this was not a sudden event, Um, it's more gradual. I'd like to talk about this, uh, the difference between a Paul, Saul-Paul conversion and a Timothy conversion. Uh, our hope in this church, especially as we're about to welcome a whole bunch, of more, whole bunch of new babies very soon. I probably shouldn't give the number so I don't get in trouble, right? <laughs> I, think it's all, I think everybody knows, but um, a lot, right? Uh, it's very exciting and our hope for our children our prayer for our children is that they that they would not have to have Damascus Road dramatic Saul type conversions right that they're living this life in rebellion to God and God has to to intervene in this hugely dramatic way we want our children to have Timothy conversions right where they've grown up being taught the scriptures from a young age where they've heard the truth of God Now, no doubt, they still need to trust Christ on their own, right? And we acknowledge that. You'll be hearing this a lot as we have a whole bunch of baptisms, right? Baptism doesn't save our children. It welcomes them into the covenant community. But before the children can come to the the table on their own, they need to make a profession of faith before the elders. That is a, you know, if you want to say a Damascus Road type experience, there is a... An acknowledgement of a, a turn in their life and an acknowledgement that, that Jesus is Lord. So that needs to happen even if it's not this dramatic event, right? There needs to be a clear acknowledgement. So, as we, again, as we just think about Saul's conversion, we get really excited when we hear stories of dramatic conversions. And we should. But don't poo-poo the, the person who says, well, I grew up in the church and I, I never knew a day when I wouldn't have trusted in Jesus. Every time you hear that you should say that's awesome brother or that's awesome sister. I know some of you have have that story and you feel like kind of like ashamed or you you've been like oh I don't have this like great conversion story. Praise God, right? Praise God. We should read Acts 9 in a way that says man there's a lot of wickedness and there's a lot of people who who need the grace and mercy of God in a dramatic way, right? But then there's a whole bunch of other people who need the same grace and mercy of God, even if they've grown up in the church, even if they know these things, right? So again, it's like, there is that tension. Um, so let's be encouraged, right, by, by Acts 9. Let's be encouraged by Saul's conversion. But let's not feel like this is the, the normative thing that, that everybody has to have this type of dramatic experience. Again, for some of us, that is more gradual. And we must be convinced of our sin and misery as our catechism question said. Our minds must be enlightened in the knowledge of Christ. Our wills must be renewed and we must be persuaded and enabled by God to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel.